So, uh, as Paul said, uh, I have known Paul for a long time, some 27 years, and uh, I met Paul in Southeast Alabama Presbytery. He was then the RUF campus minister at Auburn University. Uh, I lived in a Roll Tide town, um, so it was uh, uh, quite the interesting mix. Um, and everybody in Alabama is divided between uh, those two schools, Alabama and Auburn. That is the question when you move there, and I was just grateful that they didn't play on Sunday, because otherwise I'd be preaching to about three people. Uh, so uh, that was great. So I've known Paul a long time. Uh, he comes to us not just from RUF, but planted churches in Texas and Tennessee, and uh, has been for the last couple years the coordinator of uh, Mission in North America. And as he shared earlier, they're interested in church renewal and church planning, missional partnerships. But you don't actually do those things. Paul's kind of like the head cheerleader for the PCA for those sorts of things. Uh, he's basically coming to encourage us to do those things. So come encourage us. Thank you, David. So much. Thank you, sir. Yeah, if you want a cheerleader to be here, you want somebody a little better looking, right? A little bit younger. Uh, seeing somebody from your past, you know, from 30 years ago, makes you remember that you are older. You know, when I first met David, I was in my 20s. I'm not in my 20s anymore, my mid to late 50s. Uh, and part of that, there are, there are bad things about that, but there are good things about getting fully middle-aged and beyond. One is, is that you can read a book that you've read a couple of years before, and it all seems completely new. I was on a plane recently. I had nothing left to read. I was thumbing through uh, my, my Kindle on my phone, and I, I so wanted to sort of chill out and read something. And I saw the girl on the train. I know I've read that, but I can't remember anything about it at all. And I read it again, and all the twists and turns were as new as they were the first time. Sadly, but... But truly, I was sort of like the main character in the book, Rachel, you know, who, who has these fuzzy memories. She's trying to call back about events that are important that, that feed into the plot of the book. But, but Rachel rides the train every day from the suburbs outside London into the big city and then back out to the burbs in the evening. And it seems the train always seems to stop at one crossing, uh, going and coming, and that puts her right at the foot of a sort of little subdivision, and she tends to see this one couple almost every day, either in the morning or in the evening. Maybe they're out on the deck in the morning having coffee. Maybe they're up on the balcony in the evening having a glass of wine. And she sees this couple, and she's just mesmerized with them. And she has names for them, though she's never met them, Jason and Jess. And, and Jess just has that look that she wishes she had and that vibe and that sense of energy. And she says, oh, I would love to meet Jess. I'd love to be friends with Jess. And, and you know, Jason is handsome and seems kind and seems caring. And, oh, I wish I had a husband like Jason. I wish that was my marriage. Well, things are not as they seem as the book goes on. Things cannot be as they seem for doing church. We can struggle to know, you know, not so much what is a good marriage, but what's, what's a vibrant church look like? What's a flourishing church 
really like? It's an important question for us right now. If you were in Sunday school, you heard me toss out a few statistics that eight out of 10 evangelical churches in North America are either plateaued or declining. Those are not just all sorts of churches, but those are specifically churches like yours that have the gospel, the historic gospel at the center that preach the salvation through faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, are proclaiming that kind of gospel. Eight out of 10 of those churches are plateaued, are declining in terms of membership and worship attendance, Sunday school attendance, numbers of people being converted and baptized, in terms of programs engaging the community. Eight out of 10, it's a hard time. I shared with them that the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest evangelical group in North America, in the last decade has gone from about 16.1 million members to 14.9 million members. They've lost a million members in a decade. This is the largest evangelical group. In the Presbyterian Church in America, we're just 2,000 churches, just really a little less than 400,000 members. We have grown just a little bit, but our growth rate over the last five years has been 1%. Our growth rate the last full year of data was 0.2%. So we are moving collectively into that plateau. What makes for a vibrant, flourishing church? What an important question. We can't miss on that. You've had a beautiful first 25 years here together. You were planted and established. Your organizing pastor left. David was called and David came in and and sort of replanted the church. And I heard there were three Daves. Dave told me, David Silverdale told me that there was was the young Dave, Dave Dorst. There was Dr. Dave and there was the ancient of Daves. I haven't met him. I can't imagine that he enjoyed that title. But um, about half the people I've met here are named Dave. Uh, So sorry, I've got the wrong name up here today. You've had a great 25 years. But where are you going now? How do you press forward? What's the next quarter century mean for you? How can you be vibrant and flourishing in the life of the mission of Jesus Christ? That's what we want to see. We want to read today from the book of Acts, a story from the early church that helps us get a glimpse of what a vibrant church looks like. This is the church of Antioch after she's been established and is beginning to go forward. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Why don't we stand? I like to do that. I don't know what your custom is here, but let's stand for the reading of this text. It's printed in your bulletin, or you can look in your Bibles, or you can just listen. Acts 13, 1 through 12. What is the flourishing church? Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, 
they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, make us your flourishing church. Thank you that you did this in days of old in Antioch and throughout the early era of the church. Would you do it again among us? Would you blow fresh winds among us, Holy Spirit, and give us vibrancy and flourishing in the ways of the gospel? That the next quarter century, that the next seasons upon seasons ahead, until you come back again, Jesus, would be full a beautiful, fruitful, vibrant life in your church. We pray it in your name because that's the life that is really life, Lord. Grant that to us, we pray. By your grace, for your name's sake, amen. You may be seated. What's the flourishing church look like? Three key ideas here. The first, the flourishing church is a generous Church. The flourishing church is a generous church. The church at Antioch, if you do a little backtracking in Acts, you discover they're planted by Barnabas. He comes, there's a scattering because of persecution in the Jerusalem area. Things begin to spread out, and the gospel through this kind of scattering spreads up into the Antioch region. It's just being preached to Jewish people or people who are proselytes, people from other ethnic groups that have become God-fearers, people interested in Judaism or formally connected with Judaism. And these are the people that those being scattered by the persecution preach to in a church springs up in Antioch. And so Barnabas comes up to function like your David Silvernail after this stuff is getting going to come and establish and really plant and grow this church. And Barnabas, what we know of him in Scripture, he was this son of encouragement. He's this person, you know, like you know people like this. Some of you are probably like this, that, that just, you know, just oozes hope and joy in Jesus. And you just want to be around these people because they just encourage you and lift you up. And Barnabas has this name, son of encouragement. But what marks him in Scripture is his generosity. See, as the church is getting established in Jerusalem, um, what does he do? He sells a piece of property and lays all the proceeds at the apostles' feet in Jerusalem and says, take this, just use this for the progress of the gospel wherever it is needed. That's what marks him 
is his generosity. So it's no surprise that his fingerprints would be on the life of this church in Antioch, and, and they are. When you first hear about the church in Antioch a couple of chapters earlier, um, they're being established and growing. And in a worship service, a prophet comes, Agabus' name. Every time Agabus shows up in the book of Acts, he kind of says bad things. You don't want him to come be your guest preacher. So at least I'm not Agabus today, okay? When Agabus shows up, it's always some kind of doom and gloom. And he stands up, moved by the Holy Spirit, though. And he stands up and says, there is going to be a global famine. I want you to know this. And so how does the church at Antioch respond? Brand new. What do they do? They take up an offering. Not for Christians in Antioch, but for Christians back in Jerusalem. Because they have a sense their needs are going to be greater. We got established because the church there was persecuted. Maybe more people are going to keep traveling there for festivals and holidays on the Jewish calendar. And we want to make sure the church has a presence there in word and deed. And they can be hospitable to all kinds of people. Uh, but, but there's no word from Agabus, in the scripture at least, that it's going to be worse in Jerusalem than it's going to be in Antioch. They are just moved to give back their best, their over and abundant giving back to the mother church in Jerusalem. Generosity. But now, in our story, right, that gets ratcheted up a couple of other notches and quantum levels, right? Because what do they give away now? Not their prayers, not their money, their best people. They give away Barnabas, led by the Holy Spirit as they worship and pray and fast. Their church planner, their son of encouragement, their one who has been with them all the way, they give Barnabas up to be a part of this church planning mission that's going to begin to spread the gospel all around the world. And not just Barnabas, but Saul too, their associate pastor, their Dave Dorst, who's, Dave's awesome. I had dinner with he and his wife last night. He's awesome. He play the guitar. Dave can do everything, right? Work with youth. Do everything. Kind of like Saul was. Saul's this preacher and evangelist and thinker and philosopher He's like one part Billy Graham, one part Tim Keller, one part John Calvin, except for better than all those guys and all that stuff. And they're going to give him away too. How do you get that kind of generosity as a church? How do you do that? Only as you were doing what the church in Antioch was doing, fixating on the wonders of the gospel in Jesus through worship, through prayer, even through fasting. What's fasting, you know? I remember when I was in college, I first heard about, in a Christian fellowship about fasting. I said, I don't fast. I'm Baptist, we don't fast. Well, I can say it more for Presbyterians. We don't fast, do we? 
What's fasting? It's taking, as one of my professors said in seminary, Dr. Douglas Kelly, when you pray, you're taking one hand off the world to put it on the throne of God. But when you pray and fast, you're taking both hands off your ordinary life to cry out to God and beg him to move in your life and to show you the wonders of the gospel afresh. Worship, prayer, fasting allows them to center on the generosity of God toward us in making us in his image in not throwing away humanity when, he fe- when we fell into sin and brokenness, but moving toward us throughout all of redemptive history before the coming of Jesus, but especially in the generosity of God sending himself. Sending his son himself to take on created order, to become part of the fabric of creation, to take on human flesh like us in every way except our sin, to save us from our sin while still being God. The generosity that led God to be the God who glorifies himself by being the God of not just incarnation, but crucifixion. The God who suffered, who humbled himself throughout his journey and suffered and died in our place. That's the generosity of God. And that's how we live as generous people. Two stories about generous churches and church groups that have marked my life. One was just a year ago. I was up in Wisconsin. I did a retreat for church planters in the Wisconsin region. Um, And I went to Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, This church plant has been around six years. They're about 200 people. They meet in the Girl Scout building. It was the first sunny day in Wisconsin. It was May the 1st. So everybody was kind of out and about and happy, and we're in the Girl Scout building, which is a nice space. Required a lot, lot more setup than you have here. And, um, and, and what I discovered was, in, in being there, was that the people there had been together six years. They had grown to 200 people. They had actually been blessed from some special gifts to begin to develop a fund for a building, a capital campaign. They had raised about $150,000 in their six years to begin to look at property in a building. But as they worshiped and prayed together over the course of the previous year, God led them to say, you know what? We, uh, we don't need a building as badly as we need to keep planting churches. And they took that 150,000, first the elders decided, and then the congregation voted, and everybody voted for it. And they took that building fund and repurposed it for a church planting fund. And then of their 200 people, they took 75 of them and their associate pastor, who was their worship leader, and they sent those people out to plant another church in Oshkosh. Oshkosh, by gosh, right? the town next door. And now both churches are flourishing two years later. The mother church is back past 200 and growing. The Oshkosh church is over 100 people and growing. God is at work. Generosity. The other story of generosity I just have to tell 
is back when I met David, when I was working in campus ministry at Auburn University. Funny thing about student ministry is it can be exploding and it doesn't affect your finances at all. In fact, it can actually make your finances worse. And so for our ministry there, we were literally working with thousands of students a year at Auburn. We would have 600 students on occasion come to our large group Bible study on Monday nights, regular attendance there in the three to 400 range. And um, we worked literally with thousands of students a year. Um, and, and that ministry was explosive. And yet our funds were in the tank completely. So much so that after being at it for two years, we had a deficit that seemed massive in 1992 um, of $10,000 that we could not erase. And if we couldn't erase it, then I was going to stop being paid. And if I was going to stop being paid, I was going to have to find another job because I had three kids four and under. And so um, we prayed and worked on that, talked to churches and our Presbyterian. We worked so hard to grow that and still that $10,000 deficit would not go away. So I got a phone call from a woman in a church, two presbyteries over, over in Selma, Alabama, in the far western part of Alabama. And she says, Paul, this is Miss Lee in Selma. Hey, Miss Lee, how are you? Good, Powell. Powell, you know, Miss Lee. Um, we want you to come over and speak to our presbytery, our regional church women's group on, on, in the spring. Will you come do that? Yes, Miss Lee, I'll do that. Would you bring your pretty little wife and your two little daughters? Yes, Miss Lee, I'll do that. Thank you, Paul. Oh, my goodness. I'm thinking, I'm going to do that. I'm going to haul my family across the state. They're not even going to be able to pay for our gas in Warrior Preswick. Western Alabama, if you didn't know this, is the poorest part of the United States. It's poorer than Appalachia. The poorest part of the United States. These towns where these churches are in don't have full-time pastors. Some of these towns don't have stoplights. This is 1993. And uh, I go over, preach my little sermon to the women. They had name tags in the shape of bumblebees. They sang a Christian bumblebee song. I will never forget it. Can't make these things up. And we have our little meal together. And Miss Lee comes up on the stage and says, Paul, come up here. We want to give you now our showers of blessing love gift. I'm thinking, Lord, please let it be $100. Please let it pay for our gas and our time today. And Miss Lee starts talking about everything that the women had done in western Alabama. The car washes they'd gotten their youth to do. The bake sales they had done. The quilting circles they had and they had sold those quilts and all these things these women had done in the course of six months to raise money for the showers of blessing love gift and Miss Lee said Paul here is the gift and it is $5,000 and I started crying just like I am right now and she said Paul don't cry that's not the surprise the surprise is when we started the Presbyterian Church in America in 1973, and we were the very first presbytery to be formed, we, the women of the church, wanted to start an orphanage, and we put some money into a certificate of deposit in 1973, but we realize now in 1993, we're not going to start that orphanage, so we want to give you that money, and that was $5,000. And that deficit in one day at a place that couldn't rub two nickels together, was gone. 
Now, where does God want to write new stories of that kind of generosity through you? Where does the Lord want to have people like me crying in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years because you have been radical in your generosity as a church, as a people, as a Christian, with your money, with your time, with your presence, with your engagement. A flourishing church is a generous church. Secondly, a flourishing church is not just generous, it's creative. It's creative. So much has been written right in the new millennial here about the rise of the creative class. There's a famous book that's been written, sociological work, Richard Florida, The Rise of the Creative Class. And Florida notes all the different kinds of groups that cities try to get that, that promote creativity in a region, millennials and people with arts backgrounds, architects, entrepreneurial business people, um, you know, all kinds of groups that cities are yearning after, um, you know, different cross sections, even by age and stage and, and um, you know, um, educational background, and even sexual orientation studies have been done. But you know, in, all, in, in the studies of Florida or anybody else, I have never read somebody say that evangelical Christians are a really creative group. We need desperately to get them in our cities. Now, why is that? Yeah, maybe it's persecution, but more than that, I'm not sure we're so creative. This church in Antioch is radically creative as it's getting going. This is the place we read earlier in Acts where Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. Why? Because it's the place where so many people from so many different kinds of backgrounds and ethnic groups and, and places on the map were coming together in this place, Antioch, that was this kind of global port city for trade. And they were coming together in Antioch and they were followers of Christ together that there was no other name to call them besides Christ followers or Christians. You couldn't put another label on them. They were so diverse. What's the creativity in this passage? That we see Saul taking on a Latin name of Paul in order to engage people who are beyond the realm of being Jewish or proselytes into the Jewish community. He takes his Jewish name and makes it a Latin name so that he can engage all kinds of people with the gospel of Jesus. We see Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, going out in mission together from this church, sent out in a pair, and even John Mark goes with them a third. There's this missional team that we take so for granted. It's the ordinary way now that we plant churches to get teams of people together to go do something. But then this was utterly creative and fresh and new. Just like the early church was as it went forward into the eras after the apostolic age, meeting in the middle of the night, right, so often, to avoid persecution, and so that slaves who were one of the primary groups of the early church could have the freedom to come. The only time that was their own was in the middle of the night. And so the church would meet in the middle of the night. The church starts out, right, nesting inside of the synagogue in this first century apostolic age but then breaks out on its own. It's genius, the creativity here. 
where does God want you to be creative in expressing and living the gospel out in this space? You know, some things are set. We come together for the teaching and preaching of the word. We come together to take the Lord's Supper and to be baptized in the faith. We come together to pray for ourselves and for others and for the world around us. Preaching of the word, prayer and the sacraments, those are the marks of the church. So those are the things that make the church the church. Those are the means of grace. But beyond that, it is blue sky. Where does God in this next season ahead want you to be beautifully creative as a congregation, you to be beautifully creative as a Christian family, you to be creative as a Christian follower yourself. How do you promote that? Just like they did by coming back to the gospel. Think about the creativity of God in the gospel. God stepping into the world God giving himself in this that demonstrated his generosity, but also his creativity. God dying so the world could live. Wow, I could have never written that story. And yet every good story written since has a Christ figure in it, right? Giving themselves away so that life can come to others. It's the story underneath and behind and beyond all stories. It's the ultimate creativity. Where does God want to grow that in you? Maybe it's through artistic gifts and expressions. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's through just saying, I've got this little bit of money, Lord, that's I'm expecting this tax refund. Um, Lord, show me how to do something interesting with that for the sake of the kingdom of God. Ask the Lord as you ponder the gospel, how can creativity grow in me, grow in us as a church? The Flourishing Church is a generous church. It's a creative church. And lastly, and this is the hard one, is a humble church. It's a humble church. Where do you see humility on display here? You see it really in the church as a whole in Antioch. What was it like? I never forget my, my best friend is, is the key leader as a ruling elder, uh, lay leader in the church in Lakeland, Florida, where I grew up, that was planted 22 years ago. And now there are eight other churches out of that church. And he talked about, Paul, the first Sunday after we planted the first church, we used to have 500 people there. And I looked around and there were like 250 people, 300 people here. It looked so empty and I thought, how are we ever going to come back and grow back? How are we ever going to go forward again? It just humbled me, Paul, that Sunday as a church leader more than I've ever been. How humbling do you think it was the first Sunday when Barnabas and Saul weren't there, when David and Dave weren't there? <laughs> how are we, what are we going to do, God? How are these holes going to be filled? How are we going forward? Think about the humility of Barnabas. He's the church planter. He's the leader. He's the one that went and got Saul when nobody else believed in him, when he was hiding out in the desert. 
He stood up for them with the leaders in Jerusalem, and he brings them and helps them minister alongside him in Antioch. And now they go on mission, and all of a sudden Saul takes the lead. I'm his mentor. I'm his leader. I've taught him everything he knows. And we start, and all of a sudden, he's the one doing all the preaching. He's the one that God works the miracles through. He's the one whose ministry sees the first convert, Sergius Paulus, this governor. And do you know where all that started? Did you catch that in all the travel log? Cyprus. Do you know where Barnabas is from? Cyprus. You got to go back and play second chair in your hometown. That is humility. He takes John Mark along with them. John Mark's coming and leaving a little bit later is going to invariably rip Barnabas and Saul's friendship apart. God, all I'm doing is bringing along a younger man to try to train him in the ways of the gospel. And you're going to cause that to make a rift in this friendship and partnership between me and Paul that's lasted decades? Humility. And then there's Paul. It's really all bound up for him in the name. You got any other Pauls here today? I know you got 27 Daves. Any Pauls here? Okay, there's one back there. I'm sorry to have to tell a young man this. Uh, do you know what the name Paul means? I'm painfully aware of the etymology. Little one. Small. Don't worry, dude. You'll live it down. Trust me. Paul is taking a name that was Hebrew king Saul to a Latin person that's called little one. He's going to spend his whole journey growing down into that name, into becoming less and being humbled and suffering shipwrecks and near drownings and near stonings to death and being beaten with rods 39 times, multiple times over and sitting in the stocks and imprisonments. And on top of all that, he says, the daily concerns of the churches wear me down perhaps more than anything. This is the humility that's going to be required of Paul. And this is the humility that is required of all of us. Why? Because this is the humility of our Lord. Jesus' humility is not just the ground of your salvation. It is the pattern of your life as his follower. You know, my wife and I, we've never really had a nice landscape in our house. We've been married 33 years. We both really want a nice landscape. Um, my wife is willing to get out there and work, but I am not. I just want to wish for the nice yard. And she says, Paul, what do you think it's going to come magically? I go, yeah, that would be good. As a preacher, I lack two things to have a nice yard. I lack money to pay for it, but I lack the will in my person to go out there and get my hands dirty and work in the yard. That's where so many of us are with the vibrancy of the gospel. We want it. We're glad Jesus paid for it, but we don't want to get to work. 
we don't want to get our hands dirty. We don't want to get down on our knees in humility. And we love our church, and we just want it to magically grow. We want to do the same things. You know, I'm about 30 to 40 pounds overweight right now. I want in 2019 to end and be 40 pounds less and change none of my habits whatsoever. Probably not going to work. Where does the Lord want you to take on a fresh humility? Because of Jesus' humility for you. This is the way of the gospel. This is the way of flourishing. Now, what difference did all of this make? Everything. If Antioch, by the grace of the Holy Spirit working in them, isn't generous, isn't creative, isn't humble, this mission doesn't happen. Now, God may have and could have and certainly might have done this all another way, but this was the way it unfolded. And so if this kind of nexus of generosity, creativity, and humility doesn't happen through Antioch and Paul and Barnabas, the gospel doesn't get to you and me. Because I don't know how many of us here are Jewish Christians. I'm not. I don't think most of you are. The gospel first gets to the Gentile world and breaks out here through this mission. Cornelius was converted first as a Gentile. He's sort of a lab rat. He's kind of a Jewish God-fearer, hang-around guy who built a synagogue in his hometown. This is when the gospel first breaks out in the wild to Gentiles. If this doesn't happen, we aren't here today. Everything is changed because of this. I just want to finish with a story in which you see this nexus played out in my wife's life and how that impacted me and, and how I'm a different person today because of this. When my wife was growing up, I, sorry, friend's not with you today. She's delightful. She's clearly not just my better half. She's my better nine-tenths, you know. Um, She's so wonderful and so full of the love of Jesus. She would say, I, I haven't been like that. Not that I'm like that now, but I haven't been like that certainly in my past. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Mean Girls, Fran was one of the mean girls. She helped run her school, a Christian school, behind the scenes as one of a couple of girls running everything, and she was a mean girl. A girl moved to her school. She had big frizzy hair. She wore those... 1970s astronaut braces, and not just at night, but to school. And she had big, giant glasses, and um, Fran decided she was going to make fun of this girl named Tammy and make her life miserable. That was her job as a mean girl. And so she and her team began to make Tammy's life miserable. If you've had that happen to you as a parent, and your kid is being bullied what do you want to do to that kid bullying your kid? You want to strangle them, right? Or better yet, strangle their parents, right? That's not what Tammy's mom did. What Tammy's mom, Beth, did 
is just said, I want to find out about this girlfriend. And she discovers that my wife's the last of three kids, that, that my wife's dad was chief of staff at a hospital, a fine Christian man, but absent from the home most of the time. And then she discovers shortly after this that Fran's dad dies suddenly. That Fran's mom has, uh, suffers lots of physical issues and is bedridden. And so Fran's on her own by middle school. Um, she discovers that she doesn't ever have lunch at school, so she makes her daughter a lunch and brings one and brings it for Fran, this girl who's tormented her daughter. She works it out so that Fran and Tammy can partner up on their cheerleading team and on some school projects. She begins to get encourage Tammy to ask her over for dinner and then over on Fridays and Saturdays and then on vacations with them. When it was time for my wife to go to college and there was nobody to help her, Tammy, his mom and dad, Beth and Tommy helped her. When it was time to move down to Auburn, Tammy's mom was in the car with her and Tammy's dad was in the car with Fran and helped them move down to Auburn. My wife's Life was rescued by a woman who had every reason to hate her, loving her instead, with generosity that gave up her rights to judgment and bitterness, and instead moved out in love, with creativity to engage her and pull her into their family, and with a humility that says, I know I ought to hate you, but I'm going to love you instead. And my wife would stand here and tell you that Tammy's family taught her what it was to be a family. Tammy's family taught her what it was to love. And my wife has taught me everything I know about love. Where does God want to send those kind of rippling effects down the line a year, five years, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years? into eternity because we are flourishing as his people in the way of the gospel. I look forward to hearing and seeing the stories now and in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. We pray that we could be your flourishing people, your flourishing church. Lord, some of us maybe need just to come into this story, maybe we realize today this is not us at all, and, and maybe we've been touched by your generosity, Lord, and your humility and your creativity, and we want to start the journey. Lord, I pray for those folks today that you would give them courage and humility to come and share that with a friend or with a pastor and start that journey. Lord, for those of us on that journey, we need to be refreshed, renewed, revived in it. Help us, Lord. Help us to come back to the gospel. Help us to worship and pray and even fast to catch these things so that we can live them, Lord. Make us your flourishing church in generosity, in creativity, in humility. And may the world be changed, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Receive now the Lord's last good word to you. Open wide the arms of your hearts and minds, even your bodies. Look up and hear the Lord's blessing upon you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be merciful unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you his peace. May the Lord cause his gospel to flourish in you through generosity, through creativity, through humility. May you be changed. May the world be changed. May the Lord Jesus come quickly to make all things new. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. Go in his peace and love.